This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with a real treat this week. I had the opportunity this past summer while on the live Israel podcast tour to interview a legendary figure in the world of rabbinics, a man who invigorated an entire city Jewishly, that city being Atlanta, Georgia, where in 1952 he took over as the rabbi of a then-fledgling synagogue called Beth Jacob and remained at its helm for almost 40 years, helping transform the city Jewishly in the process. Rabbi Feldman has been one of my real heroes and role models in Jewish communal education and activism for many, many years, both for his accomplishments as a community rabbi, as well as his wonderful writings that appeal to a wide range of audiences and really touched me early on, and also by a special kinship that perhaps we share in that we both attended the same master's degree program in writing at Johns Hopkins University, separated by perhaps around 50 years or so. And to my knowledge, we are the only two from the rabbinical seminary that we, again, both attended in our respective eras to have also enrolled in that particular writing degree program. I decided to release our episode with Rabbi Feldman this week in particular because I just spent a wonderful Shabbat in Atlanta, Georgia on my way down with my family to a Florida vacation and thought this would be an opportune time to take a slight break from our more recent business series and to highlight a great figure, not only in the development of the Atlanta Jewish community, but in the larger story of 20th century American Judaism as well. And so, with that background, we head to the Jerusalem neighborhood of Bayit Vagan for my conversation with Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. We're here with Rabbi Emanuel Feldman in the beautiful city of Bayit Vagan, or town of Bayit Vagan within Jerusalem. Rabbi Feldman, a legendary, decades-long rabbi in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as widely published author and speaker internationally. And of course, his greatest claim to fame, perhaps, is that uh, he and I attended uh, either the same or a very similar uh, writing program at Johns Hopkins University, not quite at the same time, maybe around 50 or so years apart, but uh, we may have been two of the only people uh, in the history of our uh, common yeshiva to have attended this program. So, Rabbi Feldman, how are you? Well, Hashem, thank you. Good to be here. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. And uh, you did attend that program in Johns Hopkins, correct? Yes, definitely. There we go. So, and, and, and Rabbi Feldman is, is known as a very uh, prolific author and writer, and um, hopefully uh, I, I inherited some of that uh, through the same DNA in the school that I attended. Uh, in any event, Rabbi Feldman, take us to the beginning. Where are you from originally? What was your early background? Well, my father, uh, was rabbi in Baltimore for many years. So I grew up in a rabbi's home. So being, being, becoming a rabbi was nothing strange to me. I didn't get overwhelmed by it. And there was a natural uh, progression. So I was basically raised in Baltimore, although I had a few years. My father, when he first came from Europe, was rabbi up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Wow. Yeah, we lived there about four or five years. And was it a tiny, tiny Time, well, it was, congregation? It was, it was tiny. as a whole city. It had 75,000 people. Wow. And we had an Orthodox synagogue, which is a small shul. My father was learning English at the time to become a pulpit rabbi. He was a very young man at then. Then he moved to Baltimore, where he stayed for many, many years. And I ended up growing up, basically, in Baltimore from from Bar Mitzvah on until uh, I got married at the age 25. Uh, now, now, did your father come because of he wanted to become a rabbi? Did he come over from Europe? What brought him originally? Well, he came over from Europe the way many, many young people. He got married in Europe and he came over to the United States because the United States was a place where you can grow and, and, and achieve things and help Yiddishkeit and so forth. So that's why he came to USA. Where had he studied in any of the big yeah, uh, he was yeshivas. in the major yeshivas in Europe, and loves yeshiva and other yeshivas, and 
he always used to joke in Europe, to know Shas by heart was the first step of becoming a Talmud Chacham. Here, that's the pinnacle, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and w so he wasn't running from persecution necessarily. No, no, not at all. Because this was he, well before he, the, the he war. He came in 1927. Yeah. Well before the war, yeah. yeah. Although between the wars, already there was a lot of there upheaval, was, there right? Upheaval, there was pogrom, but it, it's not why he came. Right. Jewish life wasn't that pleasant in Europe, but uh, maybe it had something to do with it. And, he, and, he, and your mother was also from... My mother was from that from area of, uh, as well. They were married in Europe and came over here, and I was born when they came here. Yes, you're a native, but they certainly were not. Um, what brought them to Baltimore? Well, uh, what brought them to Baltimore was the fact that they were just learning the language, and they were only in the States a few years, and a position opened to Baltimore, and they took it, and that was it, and they stayed. And Baltimore was much... Smaller, I would imagine. Much back smaller then, then and yeah, and, and much more condensed in terms of a, a Jewish community. You know, was, they were downtown, like uh, Forest down, Park. The Forest Park was not even in existence then. Wow. Forest Park was a forest, and it wasn't even a park. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so they were mostly what we call today Baltimore downtown. Downtown. Yeah. Lombard Street, that area? Lombard Street, Baltimore, East Baltimore Street. Corn Beef Street, Road, right? Yeah, right. East Baltimore Street, Pratt Street, and so forth. Yeah, today there's not, uh, well, today there's a bit of a renaissance taking place yeah, down there. Yeah, yeah. But not necessarily in the Jewish. Gentrification, life. Gentrification, right. exactly. So, you grew up there, and I imagine you attended schools I in attended Baltimore? school in Baltimore. There was then known as the parochial school. It's now it's, it's called TA now. The Medical Academy. Sure. Then I went to. They didn't have a yeshiva high school in those days, so after the seventh or eighth grade, I went to high school, which was Baltimore City College. Wow. And I attended City. Was Poly the big rival back city then? City of City Poly game every Thanksgiving <laughs> was a major thing. Major, yeah. major. Turkey ball, they call it, or <laughs> yeah, something like that. And it was a very good school, let me tell you. City College was an all-boys school, and it was a high-level really? high school education. Very, very good. Looking back on it, it was a very, very top-flight general studies education. Uh, in the afternoons, after the city would let out around 2.30, we would go to TA for post-high school classes. So we had like an hour or two every afternoon. Ah with Rabbi Sampson, who was the principal and others of those days. So they put that on as kind of a supplemental just program? Just to help us out. For the high yeah. school kids. And they also learned with my father, and my mother taught me Hebrew and that type of thing. So It's hard to imagine, like in today's context, yeah. that you know, a, a, the rabbi's son right. would go to a public school and not right. to a Jewish day school. There was no alternative. There was no alternative. No alternative. Wasn't there Israel the, there is high school yet? There Israel hadn't even begun. Period yeah, at all. Be, and, wow. and it began slowly, and later on, many years later, it started its own high school. It didn't start with the high school. It started only with the base medrash. Wow, amazing. So you're in, in public school, and was that a challenging environment to be in as a religious Jew? Uh, in a way, yeah. We uh, the, the boys who had come from the TA used to eat lunch together with our yarmulkes and the kosher and a special table we, we created for ourselves and so forth. But in general, I don't recall any real problems in being religious Jew, except in September when we had to miss a series of Mondays and Tuesdays for the Yom Inoroim and for Sukkot and Shemchus Torah. It became somewhat of a problem. <coughs> Some teachers were more understanding than others, so it worked out. I have only good memories of going to city. Incredible. And it sounds like there was a whole group of you, so you had some We had strength. a nucleus of yeah. <coughs> five or six guys. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And then the after-school studies and, and things right. of that nature. Right. So throughout this time, did you have a sense that you wanted to become a rabbi? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> what was your early uh, career dream? I had no career dream. My career dream was just to get through the, the, the school year. Um, later on, when I was in Nair Yisrael, I realized that I wanted to go into some Jewish communal work, either Jewish education or Rabbonus. And uh, I chose Rabbonus with the help of my father and Rudim as one of Rocha. Both of them urged me to enter the rabbinate, which I did. I, I entered the rabbinate in 1952 when I got smicha and came right to Atlanta, which was a tiny little shul in a small Jewish community, and stayed there. 
Incredible. And we'll, I want to dive into the Atlanta story because I know it's uh, voluminous and you've written about it. One of the, one of the great, charming, uh, modern Jewish books, uh, Tales Out of Shul, which I loved reading when it came out. What do you think, still as you were really beginning your more intensive Jewish education, I guess that was post high school, did, you, did, did something, what changed for you that you suddenly wanted to become a rabbi, a Jewish professional? Well, I always was one of the, I always expected to be an observant Jew. That right. was not a question. The question is, you know, what would I do with, with the rest of my life? I don't know what changed. Uh, it could be that my father's example inspired me, because he was a very effective rabbi. Even though English was Even not his native language. Yeah, but he learned English perfectly well, and he was able to give excellent drushes in English and lectures. In general, I felt that, uh, you know, maybe I could do something for Yiddishkeit a little bit, and that's why I did it. Can you describe kind of the state of the Jewish world in 1952? I think a lot of people today look around and see a burgeoning, you know, enterprise, a really well, in full-scale, what was it like? In 1952, remember, it was just four or five years after the founding of the State of Israel. Right. Israel was a baby, it was, it was a foundling, really. Yeah. Um, Yiddishkeit in America was dying. Orthodoxy was dead. Everyone said so. You had to be crazy to enter the Orthodox rabbinate, and everybody told me that. Uh, and when you're young, you're crazy. So, <laughs> you know, so I was crazy. So I was privileged to be a witness to the Tchias HaMesim, the resurrection of Orthodox Judaism in the United States where today it's the ascendant movement in 2018 of Yiddishkeit in America that the, unfortunately and tragically the conservative movement and reform movement are just d dying and the Orthodox in America are growing and uh, so I was witness to all that and, uh, and uh, in a way part of all that growth and saw it all happen in my own community. Wow. When you were uh, I guess the, the founding of the state was when you were still studying in yeshiva? Was I was still in yeshiva. In fact. What was that experience that like? That was an unbelievable then? experience. Was the yeshiva sort of dominated at that time by the news? Yeah. Was everyone talking it, about yeah, it? Yeah, everyone was talking about it one way or another. I also remember there were mass meetings in this Baltimore uh, greeting uh, the new state, and there was a live broadcast on Garrison Boulevard in front of the old Beth Tefillah Synagogue. Yeah. There were thousands of people gathered out there listening to... Uh, to the United Nations vote? The United Nations vote, which was on Friday, ah. and listening to the establishment of the state. And Ben-Gurion's declaration. Something like that, yeah. yeah. We all, all, all heard all that on the radio. Wow, and people were just, were people amazed? We were just amazed. Amazed. amazed was an understatement. We were in awe about what happened. We were sure Mashiach was there, yeah. or coming around the corner. So it was a great time, Baruch Hashem. And in particular, was there a large number of, of Holocaust survivors, refugees that were... There were a huge number of yeah. those, those days, yeah, who, of course, were overwhelmed by it all. Yeah, unbelievable. It must have been an amazing time to... It was an amazing to time, be, yeah. To be there. And, and I guess, was that part of the inspiration for you? Did you feel like, because these events were converging, that there was maybe uh, an opportunity here to do something for the Jewish people as a rabbi? Well, I don't know whether I ever articulated it per se as, as well as you did, but that may have been something subconsciously within me. Yeah. And uh, I've never regretted being a rabbi. A rabbi, the rabbinate is a very difficult life. Yes. Very difficult. It's 24-7 and it's 365 days a year. And Shabbos is a very, not an easy day. <laughs> day. Not a day off. <laughs> not a day off. So uh, nevertheless, I would do it again because, first of all, I was lucky. I guess me and Shemayim, I had a fine congregation yes. of people who didn't give me a hard time, who were very loving. They were Southern people, very good. They followed. They didn't run all from, but they were very decent people. So that made life uh, bearable, uh, made the rabbinic life bearable. And of course, I was lucky to have married a woman who was perfectly suited to be a rabbi's wife, and all the ladies liked her. I always said she was the only rabbi in the United States whom the ladies liked. <laughs> okay.
Did she grow up in a rabbinic family as well? She did not grow up in a rabbinic family, although she grew up in an orthodox family. In Baltimore? In New York. In New York, okay. And, of course, to, to get her family to agree to have her move to Atlanta, <laughs> which Atlanta in those days was considered the boondocks. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta, whoever heard of Atlanta. And uh, today Atlanta is a major, major city. How did you, how did you two meet? Who uh, made the, the shidduch? With her? Yeah. Well, I told her we're going to stay in Atlanta just a couple of years until I learned to be a rabbi. But how did you meet her to begin with? You well, that, you met those days. They didn't have shidduch. Shid you just met. You just met. Yeah. But you were in different cities. The different cities we met in between. Anyway, she, uh, I knew that this was the girl I wanted to marry. So uh, when I came to Atlanta and, and I told her parents and her that, you know, well, a couple of years, <laughs> we'll learn to be a rabbi. Actually, and they'll move, you'll move to New York and yeah, get a right. puppet afterwards. Right. <laughs> Famous Actually, last words. I'm a slow learner. It took me more than two years <laughs> to be a rabbi. That's right. Now, how did you actually get connected to Atlanta, uh, of all places? Well, I, w I was looking for a pulpit for a position. I couldn't find one. They wouldn't give me an interview because I was too young. <gasps> Atlanta was young, too, this shul, and uh, they consented to give me an interview. They were desperate, and I was desperate. <laughs> That's a good match. It was a good match. So <laughs> did, we made a shidduch right did away. Did they have connections with Near Israel? Not like, political program? Like, how did they even know to approach you? I don't know how they... Uh, oh, the connection was there was another rabbi in Atlanta in a larger shul who, who knew my father. Ah, okay. And uh, told him that there's this young pulpit available for a young rabbi. There we so that's, go. That was the connection. <laughs> that was it. Now, you came down to Atlanta, and I, I remember reading in your in your memoir, so to speak, your book, that you came off the train, you know, a, a wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, idealistic rabbi. Can you describe uh, what that experience was like, you know, coming uh, a northerner of sorts, although Baltimore is just below the Mason-Dixon line, but not of the, the southern quality that Atlanta is. What was that experience like getting off that train? Yeah, first of all, getting off the train. In those days, nobody took a plane. Yeah. Uh, so we got off a train, overnight ride from Baltimore to Atlanta, and I got off the train. I was alone. It was my interview. Ah, before shot. your wife. Before my wife. Before okay. I was married, even. I was engaged already, but uh, I was met at the station by three gentlemen from the shul, a committee, and uh, they didn't they walked past me four times on the platform <laughs> where they realized this guy must be the rabbi because I looked more like like a young young fellow just out of school, which I was. <laughs> so right. So then we, uh, I, I met them and spoke on Shabbos and Sunday and met the people and they offered me the position, which I took. You no were prepared on the, on the spot. To no <laughs> one else would take me, so that's how the answer. How did I get there? That's how I got there. Uh, and then I guess you went back to Baltimore? And went back to Baltimore, got, got married a couple months later, then came back and took the position. And right away, did you start at like the high holiday season? You jumped I right in? I started on high holidays. That right. must have been uh, a pretty dramatic introduction. It was very difficult. In a way, on the other way, hand, as I, as I said before, I was used to the rabbinate already, so it wasn't, it, it, was, it wasn't terribly shocking. You grew up with it. So yeah. what were your first impressions of this young community? First of all, how, how many families well, were in the Well, the family, the, the number of families in those days was, when I started, was about 30 or 40 families. Oh, very small. Very small. And were you the first rabbi, or they had a previous They rabbi? had a previous part-time part -time. rabbi, but now I was the first, quote, full-time rabbi. And uh, the high holidays were crowded. We had about 90 people. You know, <laughs> and we had a little uh, reconverted house, okay. which we used the living room for davening and so forth. And then Baruch Hashem, the still gradually grew over the years. Uh, so what, what were some of the early um, challenges there? What was it like trying to create sort of a beachhead in Atlanta of religious Judaism? Yeah, it was a very challenging environment because the major power in the city in the city of Atlanta, the Jewish power, was centered in the non-Orthodox synagogues. The conservative temple had over 2,000 families. Wow. Reform had about also about 2,000 families, and that was and there was us, which maybe you know 40 families. And were those all in the? Uh, what area of Atlanta was that? Was that what downtown? Today is called downtown. Downtown. So Just that was like, not the Toco Hills or no, suburbs of, not at of, all. of later. Yeah. And uh, gradually, though, you know, 
we um, made our little beachheads. My philosophy was to just to do one Jew at a time, yiddle by yiddle, one, <laughs> one Jew at a time, and that was. Uh, over the years, you know, we uh, became known as being an authentic operation, non-phony. Not that the others were phony necessarily, but everyone knew that this was not a phony operation. And we attracted little by little people from other communities and newcomers from other cities. Ah. So we grew a little by little. Was Atlanta also growing as a city? Atlanta was also growing. Yeah, tremendous. Atlanta was very much in a growth situation, Atlanta was. So you, I imagine, benefited from that as well. Sure, absolutely. People came in, Jews moved in from other cities. Then we started a day school. My wife was the first teacher. Is that the yeshiva of Atlanta, or? No, we started at the Hebrew Academy Hebrew of Atlanta. Academy. So we started in our shul. Gradually, that grew over the years. Then we started a high school. And there's now, there's two kololim in the city. Right. There's a, a Beis Yaakov type high school for girls. And there's a yeshiva Masifta type for boys. And the city is flourishing Jewishly, where now a Jew can move to town. There are two major supermarkets that cater to Jewish clientele. You have the Chinese restaurant and the, the Kroger's. restaurant, <laughs> and there's uh, whatever you want to, for the stomach and for the brain, you have whatever. You didn't have a Chinese restaurant when you moved in, I'm guessing. No, <laughs> right. Was it difficult to even secure kosher food back then? And it was necessities? Yeah. It was difficult. Did you yeah. import, or what did you do? Well, we had to import stuff. I mean, we went uh, a couple of years without meat. We, we, really? could, we they had a shechet for chickens, but we didn't have shita for meat, which is okay. You can live without meat. You know, man does not live on meat alone. You know, <laughs> so um, it was not easy. But it was, in retrospect, it was not difficult. I mean, it was a very pleasant community I was with. I loved them. I hope they loved me, and we got along very, very well. Did we had our crises. Definitely did. We had our disagreements. What would be an example of a, of a crisis well, early on? Well, the crisis was I wanted to put in a larger mechitza and they didn't want it. And I had to threaten to resign. And wow, and how, how early was that in your tenure? Third year in. Third year. And so forth. But it was all done in a nice, non-threatening environment. I just said, oh, I just have to leave, you know. And so they, they didn't want me to leave, so they did that. They've done a lot of things, built a brand new mikveh, several new mikvahs. New Shul, and uh, the schools grew, the city grew, the city, it's, it's a very nice, very nice story of development and growth. Yeah. Now, early on, did you kind of strategically decide to focus on a particular kind of subpopulation, like the youth specifically, or any group, and, and kind of what did you do, or, and what did you find was successful to really touch people in those early years? What I found was successful was one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we had parlor meetings where we had just discussion groups, couples groups. Mm. On Sunday nights, we'd meet at different homes. Right. Four or five couples, six couples. It's sort of refreshments. We'd have an informal give-and-take discussion. I taught classes, uh, women's classes in, in Chumash. Once a week, we had classes for men. Uh, in, uh, introduce them to Mishnayas and Gemara, that type of thing. So I found the most effective thing was to deal with people with textual study and with one-on-one -on -one discussions and not force things down people's throats, but gradually let them open the door, then you go in. And you feel like the, the texts themselves drew people? Texts themselves had a, have, a, have a magic in them that draws people in. They see that Yiddishkeit involves more than lighting candles on Friday night. Because the, the thing in early on, a firm family was defined by they lit candles on top of their burning television, right. or their glowing television on Friday night. And Friday night they sit and watch TV while the candles flickered. Right. That was Yiddishkeit. Occasionally there were from families, I mean, families who kept kosher. Uh, not too many. Some who kept kosher in the house but not out of the house. Right. The whole gamut. Now, when did you start to realize how, how early on in this process that you were kind of onto something, that there was a real potential so for this seven or eight to years. grow? Yep. Seven or eight years. What, was there a moment that you said, oh, uh, uh, seven we're or eight here. Something <laughs> was happening. It's like, you th it's like you're in a garden. You throw out seeds in the dirt. 
and after a while they begin to sprout. And I was seeing seedlings sprout. One young family became Shomer Shabbos, this young family began keeping cars of Ishbacha. Little by little things were beginning to gel. And right. I realized something was going on here. So it wasn't an individual moment, but rather no, it was a collection a of collection of moments. Yeah. Uh, and once that happened, did you abandon thoughts of returning to the quote-unquote big city up north? Well, no, I, I had opportunity to go to the. Big, I'm sure you had many yeah. to, to the big places. Uh, sometimes they were very tempting, but I, I stayed. <laughs> Why? Uh, sometimes I wonder. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I stayed because I saw something was growing here that it wouldn't necessarily happen elsewhere. Right. And did you also feel like it would be difficult for someone else to come in and replicate what you were doing there? Well, yeah, I thought that too. Um, but primarily, I, I, I thought that I could not replicate what I was doing in Atlanta, in New York, or uh, some other big city, Los Angeles, or London, or wherever. You know, I figured that... Why not? Because... The, the recipients were different, ah, different people. That southern more set in their ways. I had I had a malleable group that was able to listen and could be formed, but in other cities it was already hardbound, rock-like, entrenched, entrenched people. Exactly. It's interesting though because you've written uh, in in your books that although the people ostensibly were very receptive there was a certain gentility and sort of southern politeness that may have masked, you know, a deeper intransigence at times. Yeah, yeah. And where they were smiling, great yeah. sermon, Rabbi, yeah, yeah. but then what did I actually say? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it that, wasn't necessarily... Not only that, great sermon, Rabbi, I didn't speak today. <laughs> that was even better. <laughs> so how did, you, how did you deal with that sort of politically correct, well, kind of know, smiling. One, one learns how to handle, how to see beneath the surface <laughs> in the rabbinate. You, you learn to see beneath the surface. And you slip it out. I saw they were decent people. Right. Even underneath the southernness. Right. They were especially decent. Right. So what started to evolve over the years as, the, as you were building the community? I guess at some point the community changed. Uh, in terms of the demographics of you know where you were located, and you moved to the suburbs, how did how did things evolve over time? What evolved over time was that these grass sproutings began to grow up, and there were a lot of them, and that helped change the community. You know, they made they wanted to be more this and more that, more Jewish and so forth. They responded to different to higher level classes. They responded to a Gomorrah class. The, the davening became better. The whole atmosphere became more Jewish, little by little over the years. Yeah. How did you have to adapt from your end in order to accommodate that? Well, I was looking for that all along, right. so I didn't take too much adapting. What I had to adapt to was what happened before it happened. Right. Yeah. That was the that was the aberration for you. Right. Exactly. But yet still, you know, you you must have been surprised on some level about. You know what was taking place. I definitely was. I was surprised, pleased, astonished, and uh, tried to adapt to uh, the new reality, which was a good reality. Although, with I must say that with the new reality came new problems, such as such as talking during davening. You know, New York imports. You think that that's a function of just familiarity and... Yeah, familiarity. There were people who moved in from the big cities who were used to talking during Kriya Satoru. We didn't allow talking during Kriya Satoru. Right. People knew that. And they, there was probably a southern decorum as well. Yeah, and, and they know that you don't talk during davening, you know, but in the, come down from bigger cities, you talk during davening. Kriya Satoru was a time to discuss the sports and Wall Street, and this, you know. So with the growth came problems. We handled them, but... How did you handle, for example, that problem? Handle them uh, gently, <laughs> you know. Like I say, this is not Brooklyn, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of a joker, this smile, is not the Borough Park. This is not Borough Park, Brooklyn. This is Atlanta, where we don't talk during that. Um, you handle it in a different way. I mean, individually, we handle it. Yeah. We're still a very quiet show. Yeah. Still very quiet. Those who want to talk, they broke off and made their own shul. Okay. It's a sign of Jewish growth. You have a breakaway shul, you make your own shul. It's a sign of success. Right. Around this time, as all of this 
progress was, was occurring. Were you in frequent or even any contact with rabbinic colleagues around the country? Oh, definitely. I was, uh, I used to attend rabbinical conventions all the time. Which Through which, gave, which organizations? The RCA, RCA. and Yosha Bear Soloveitchik used to give shiurim at these conventions and lectures which were, which greatly strengthened us. Mm. What uh, were they about? Were they, were they just theoretical or they were really about practical rabbinics? Both. Both. And he was very, he, he really strengthened our backs because it was not easy but to be in a minority in the community. Right, right. Was that your first encounter with him? Because you hadn't well, attended it. No, I hadn't attended it. Well, that was my first encounter with him. I used to go to Shirim after that whenever I could. Um, and so I was in contact with a lot of rabbis around the country. And as I grow older, younger rabbis in the South came to me for advice. advice. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll bet they did. Yeah. I'll bet they did. Now, were, the, were your colleagues around the country experiencing similar kinds of results, or was it depending no, that, on the community? It depends on the community. Yeah. A lot of colleagues were, were experiencing good results, and others were, were having real problems. Yeah. Depended. You should have invited them down to Atlanta. <laughs> well, well, I don't know if you want to create competition for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, who, were, who were some of the other um, sort of standout rabbis of that time that you remember having interactions with? Well, Nochem Rabinovich, who's now the rabbi in Male Adumim, is a oh. big Tomba Chochem, was rabbi in Charleston, South Carolina. Wow. Uh, there's the Rizalman Posner, Zachron Levrocha, who was a, a Lubavitcher rabbi, very effective in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they had some very good men. So these are the Southerners. The South, so yeah. All Southerners. We had a Southern regional convention every year. Oh. We all got together. Uh, there were a lot of very good people in the South in those days. Is there something about those days and the Judaism or the, the Jewish experience of those days that you miss today? I, cu I couldn't say so necessarily. Um, maybe there was no internet. You know, there was no distracting things like that uh, that pulled people away from Yiddishkeit, that pulled people away from a communal activity. But basically, uh, the Jewish heart remained the Jewish heart. Yeah. What were some of the major lessons that you learned about rabbinics over these many decades? Did you, and obviously, as you said, younger rabbis would come and, and consult. Uh, what were kind of the major principles, guiding principles, that you would try to impart and that were sort of like ma you know, major takeaways from, from the collective experience? Well, one of the things I always tell younger would-be rabbis is uh, just don't look down on people just because they're not from or just because they're not learned. They can tell when you're looking down on them. Don't look down your nose. Respect each person for what he or she is. Give them a sense of integrity. You respect them, and they'll respect you. If you try to love them. Care for them. Be a good shepherd. If you're a good shepherd, they'll respond. They'll follow you. My people followed me to put in a decent mechitza, though they weren't happy with it because they knew I cared for them. So caring for them and so forth and uh, loving them, being a good shepherd, not looking down at them are keys to being a successful rabbi then and now. Yeah, that doesn't change. No. And other, other major uh, principles that, that you like to share with people? Well, you should always be prepared when you're when a rabbi at a practical level, a rabbi shows up at a meeting, you be prepared to say something because they're going to call on you uh, by surprise. You know, always have something in your pocket to say. Make sure you behave, behave as a Jew wherever you are, not just in shul, but wherever you are and so forth. Because you're being watched not only from above, but by people <laughs> and so forth. Um, try to make a Kiddush Hashem in whatever you do and how you, how you talk to people how you deal in business with people, uh, how you pay your debts to, to the stores. You know, be a mensch all around. That's yeah. the key to being a Jew and to being a good rabbi. Right, not even, not even just a rabbi, I was going to say. say. yeah. Now, you mentioned that there were these, when you came to Atlanta, there were these huge um, reform conservative temples of various types. 
when and, and how did you start to get involved in the wider Jewish community? Was that something where you were welcome presence oh, yeah, well, when you arrived? I, I, well, our presence was welcome. Uh, I was involved in the wider Jewish community from the from day one. You know, so no, one, they didn't bother. You, th we weren't a threat. Right. Right. Yet. Right. So uh, I was definitely involved with the, with the, with the citywide Jewish communal things from the very very beginning. How did you look to, I guess, insert yourself to try to influence the direction of the overall city at well, large? Well, I wasn't conscious, but I, I figured in time we'll do we'll we'll be influential. Right. Uh, you feel like just when you're as your congregation grew, it became more influential. Became, became more yeah. influential. Yeah. And so, did you get involved in things like a federation? Yeah, or? well, I was involved in federation, board, board of Jewish education, such things. Yeah, Israel Bonds organization. We were involved in all that. We were instrumental in ma in making every citywide Jewish dinner kosher. See, really? you wouldn't believe that when I came, citywide Jewish dinners were not kosher. Right. Because there was no kosher place to have it. Right. But we worked on it for years. And we finally made every citywide dinner in principle was kosher. How did you do it? Did you bring in catering from the outside? Well, no, but we were instrumental in getting a brand new kosher hotel to put in a kosher kitchen. Wow. It was a high class place and, and that sort of broke the tide. And that's where the events were all held? Yeah. yeah. So all the hotels started making kosher and uh, little by little it became a principle in town. Nobody holds a non-kosher dinner anymore. I mean, that was just a small symptom of influence. Right. Yeah. Um, now, along this road, at some point, you started as well <coughs> to publish writing. Yeah. Uh, was that only later in your career, or even after retirement, or is that something because you had a penchant for writing, as we mentioned the the Johns Hopkins program? Which when did you do that? Did you do that while I did the Johns Hopkins program while I was in Eretz Israel? Right. So was I was always writing ever since I was 12 years old. Wow. Was that yeah. the undergraduate program or their master's program? It was a master's program. That's, master's. That's why I, I thought I had, you told me that about 20 years ago, I think. Yeah. You came to speak when I was in rabbinical school. Yeah. And you mentioned it, and I thought that I did that master's program as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so did you write throughout your career, or was it really only once you retired? No, no, I wrote throughout my career. What kinds of writings did you did Anything. You? Poetry, short stories, articles, mostly articles. I was editor of Tradition Magazine for 13 years. Really? I did not know that. Oh, yeah. okay. Wonderful. So that was while I was a rabbi. So I uh, did a lot of writing for them. I've always done writing ever since I was a kid. And you mentioned poetry and short stories. I didn't know yeah. that was part of your repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. Is that uh, something that's, that's been publicly uh, you know, publicized? Or, uh? Well, we, we, this is the first revelation on this podcast. <laughs> Try to keep it between ourselves. We're breaking ourselves. news here. <laughs> Try to keep it with our, within ourselves. Just between us. Huh? Right. <laughs> um, I'm sure. I'm sure that would be of great interest to to many people. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, later on, you of course chose to start publishing books, uh, book yeah. length features. What precipitated that choice? Well, the first book I published was as a result of our being here in Israel during the '67 war. Why you were here for what purpose? We were here on a sabbatical. Ah, so you had a, a full year. Uh, a full uh, well, nine months. Yeah, nine I, months I was off. here, nine months to be here, and during that, those nine months, the Six Day War broke out. Just we were here with coincidentally, our, yeah. We were here with our little kids. Wow. We were here during the war, and I wrote a diary, a day by day diary, of what happened. It was just recently republished for the 50th anniversary. It just came out again. What's that called? 28th of ER. Wow. Which is the day of the liberation of Yerushalayim? And where were you living during that time? B'nai Brak. Okay, so you weren't actually in Jerusalem. I was itself. teaching. I was teaching in Bar Ilan University. Ah, okay. At that for that what year. What were you teaching? Guess what? English writing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. How appropriate. Do you, so it was when the war concluded and and the Kotel had been liberated. What was that experience like? Oh, that was an unbelievable experience. Did it you was only equaled by the experience of this founding of the, the state. Founding of the state. You were really there yeah. for two seminal I was there, moments. right. Did you immediately flock to go to the old city of Jerusalem? Was yeah. it open immediately to the public? No, but I was a war correspondent. Technically, I had I had uh, papers to be a correspondent. Through, so through I, what agency? Through the local Jewish paper in Atlanta. In Atlanta. <laughs> 
And I was able to go to the hotel before the hotel was opened. Wow. Just the day it was liberated, I was there. Wow. By yourself or with any kids? No, with, no, no by myself, not with any kids, with the other, car, the other journalists. Uh, were you the only religious member? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable. So yeah. you, did you daven there the first day? Yeah, daven there the first day. Unbelievable. And I imagine there was no plaza, right? No, there was, was nothing there. No plaza, there. no. It was about 10 feet between the wall and the buildings right in front of it. Unbelievable. What was that experience like? Well, it's hard to describe. I try to describe it in the book, 28th of Eeyore. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Um, and then you later wrote a book called Tales Out of Shul, yes. much later. Yes. Uh, now, that was once you retired or once you were about no, to retire? No, that, that was right after I retired. Okay. Yeah. And what was the impetus for that? The impetus for that was I thought that the life of the rabbi is so very, very interesting that I really needs to be put down on paper. And uh, I didn't think my life was any more interesting than anyone else, but no one else had written such a book. Right. So I did it. Uh, many publishers didn't want to take a flyer on it, didn't want to do it. Why not? They figured it's a dime a dozen rabbi's diaries, you know. Art School did a chance on it, and they did very well. They did very <laughs> well. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah. And also later on, I did them a favor because they wanted a book on Judaism. Right. To deal with Judaism, they wanted me to write a book about basic Jewish beliefs. Yes. I didn't want to do it, but I owed them one, so I did it. They're doing very well on that as well. Why didn't you want to do it? I figured the dime a dozen such books. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Everyone has their. Everyone has a dime a dozen. <laughs> now this book, I forgot what it's called, but that's like a it's dialogue on Judaism. On Judaism, it's a dialogue. A conversation between, on Judaism between a rabbi, a fictional rabbi, and a, and a, and a right. A fictional it's still seeker. Being, it's still being distributed. It's still wow. being done. Yeah. Incredible. Now the, the tales out of Shul was born of an actual diary that you kept over time. Did you actually yes, yes, record actually, your thought actually, contemporaneously? Yes. When I was sitting at one of these horrible, boring, communal dinners, which were kosher, so I had to attend. <laughs> no more excuses. <laughs> right. I uh, used to bring index cards with me and jot down the events of the week, just ah. scribble them down. Everybody thought I didn't know what I was doing. They probably thought you were taking notes of the keynote speaker. The speaker exactly. <laughs> I would put them away, throw them in a box when I got home. When I got retired, I put them all together. It took years to put them I'll together. I'll bet, all the note cards, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's that was the genesis of it. Incredible. Do you have a favorite story from that book? Oh, no, I have a lot of favorite stories, not just one. The, the, the whole thing was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I'm still getting nachas from that book. People are still reading it and oh, yeah. enjoying it. It made a big impact on me uh, when yeah, I was, I, know, I guess. Uh, and, and why you, it was a torn copy of Tales Out of Show. They, they bought one copy, <laughs> and they lent it to a hundred guys who were becoming rabbis. Oh, extended. So it's, the most, it's the most widely read book in YU's dormitory, and the, and, the, and the most little purchased. I was going to say, if only they could have actually purchased hundred oh, copies. <laughs> could have actually gotten some royalties. Yeah. You know? um, is, there, is there maybe one story in that book that kind of typifies the broader experience in the rabbinate? Oh, that's hard to pinpoint. There's a number of stories that were very, very, meant a tremendous amount to me. The, probably the very first story I have in there is about when I first got there, they asked me the Hebrew name for, uh, late Rabbi, what's the Hebrew name for Christopher or something like that? And I said to myself- Was it Christopher or Nicholas? Was it Nicholas? Nicholas. Nicholas. <laughs> I said to myself, is this what I learned you're there for? Studied for years in yeshiva to answer that. To answer, what's the Hebrew name for Nicholas? I was really demoralized by that. But then I came up with a brilliant solution. Nehemia. Nehemia has the Nun, has the Ches, Nicholas. Anyway, Nicholas grew up to become Nehemia. And he became, with his family, Shermer Shabbos. And he's, he's still around. I mean, I changed his name. <laughs> but uh, he's still around. Still around. Yeah. Did... Um, did you have any great mentors over your time as a rabbi? Did you have older rabbis to, to well, consult with? Well, first of all, with? I had my father. And were you able to consult with him? Oh, I was able to consult with him. I had uh, Rav Ruderman was able to consult with him. And back then, was it phone calls? Was it letters? Phone calls and letters. Phone calls were very expensive yes. those days, but I could do it. I occasionally had the privilege through my father's intercession 
to speak to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein on major issues. They uh, had a relationship? Yeah, my father and he had a relationship. Going back to Europe even? Yeah, or? going back, wow. way back. So they all, I had entree to them all through my father. Yeah. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Ruderman, and Rabbi Soloveitchik. So I was fortunate in many ways. I had the background. Right, and then were there, there, mu there must have been other rabbis, you know, not great luminaries, but just rabbis in the field yeah, who, who could guide you? Yeah, definitely. There were rabbis, experienced rabbis, who were able to answer just practical questions that I needed to have answers to. Right. Now, there's a famous story. Atlanta is the, uh, the world headquarters of Coca-Cola. Right. And uh, there's a famous story about how the Coca-Cola first became kosher. Was that during your time period or before? That was before my time. That was Rabbi Geffen. Rabbi Geffen, yes. Uh, it was an older European rabbi who was in Atlanta before. He was just retiring when I came. So you didn't actually overlap, or? No, we didn't overlap. Didn't overlap. We, did, we overlapped in a way. He was already retired when I came, and he passed away about five years later. So mm -hmm. I knew him quite well, but uh, he was the one who wrote the famous tshuva, saying that Coca-Cola was kosher. Right, and he knew the secret ingredients, and? Apparently, right. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. So you didn't inherit that mantle? Or that, that well, I was uh, the OU. They wanted to get the OU, the ah. Coca-Cola. They didn't want to be content with just a chuba. They wanted the OU on the label, or at least have the endorsement. So OU sent me down to Coca-Cola, and I saw their bottling plants and so forth. But uh, there were some stumbling blocks um, because of certain things they wouldn't reveal. There's not the other. Because of their formula. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, over the years. It worked out for them, you know. I was not involved later on. Right. But initially, they, they did want you to, yeah. to go down there and yeah. <laughs> try to do some reconnaissance. Right. Um, I know that, you know, education is, is obviously a very important element to any father and to any rabbi. And in your own family, education took on the form of actually uh, bringing your own child up into this uh, profession. Was that something that, uh, is, for those unaware, your, your son uh, is, is the current rabbi of Beth Jacob in, in Atlanta. Was that something you always kind of dreamed of or envisioned, having, that, uh, having someone take over the mantle for you? From Not really, no, I didn't really envision that at all. Uh, just happened that over the years, he went off to yeshiva, he also learned to know Yisrael. It became apparent that he would make a very, very good rabbi. What about his personality fit uh, that? Everything, every, <laughs> everything, he, okay. everything. He was just, I thought he was very well suited for it. He was outgoing, he was, he was caring, he was learned, he was dedicated. So I thought he had all the qualities. You know. So you figured just why not ha have so him he here? Might as well, yeah, and he wanted it too. So yeah. then the opening happened in our show, we needed an assistant rabbi. Because it was getting bigger? Yeah, it got bigger and he needed, and, and he was looking for positions, so. Again, two Feldman, a Feldman and the Atlanta Should've. desperate. <laughs> right, exactly. Another marriage of convenience, but of course, at that time, with much more background and the family yeah, yeah. Uh, connection there. Yeah. Was it? Was there ever a thought that it would be difficult for him? And maybe this is a question for him ultimately, but uh, to kind of come in and live in the shadow of someone who had been there for so long. Yeah, there was definitely that trepidation. I was warned by rabbis who were in similar situations with father and son, yeah. that it won't work, it can never work. But it did work here. Yeah. I don't recall any time over the many, many years that we've been together that we ever had a serious dispute about anything. You know, we saw everything eye to eye. He's a very good son and he, he's very big on kibbutz av, aim. He, and I don't interfere. First of all, I'm in Israel, so I can't. Well, now, but there was plenty of time where you were not. So. Plenty of time. We, he, ten years, he was my assistant rabbi on the scene while I was there. So that's a lot of time you know, for possible or, disputes. Or we had no problems together at all. That's an amazing, an amazing testament, yeah. um, both to you know to his uh, respect for for his father, but also to the the education that his father gave him to have that sort of respect. Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you determine it was time to? retire and then what ultimately brought you to Israel as opposed to you know, staying in Atlanta as an active emeritus or yeah. closer to, I know most of your children are or if not all perhaps are in America so, so what actually brought you to well Israel? I had served 39 40 years as full-time rabbi and yeah. I figured it's a shenzai it's time already you know 
let somebody else take over. I figured I served my time. Yeah. And I was still, I felt young enough to do something else, whatever I wanted to do. I didn't want to stay in Atlanta because that would really be a shadow over him. Ah. I could have gone to Florida, as many of my colleagues did, but I figured Israel was a logical place where we came here. So um, this is the answer to your question. Yeah, and, and did, was it difficult to come to Israel where, you know, your family is not in Israel, right? Your, your children. At that time, my father and mother lived here. When you retired? Yeah. Your parents were still living at that time? My parents were still living and they lived in Israel. Unbelievable. They were in Baltimore, but they moved to Israel earlier. Wow. So they were already living here. My my wife's parents were also living here at the time. Wow. What year was it that you moved here? 1991, 1992. Ah, it's that here. long ago you actually retired. We've been here 27 years or so. You, so you've been retired 27 years? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And my brother, Aaron, who's now Mary Israel, right. lived here at the time. Right. So they were all in Bayat Vigan, so we were, I, had, I didn't move into a strange territory. Right. But your children and grandchildren are principally uh, Well, I have grandchildren here. I have two daughters living here. Ah, you do? Okay. And with their children. So they have, we have a Baruch Hashem, enough grandchildren to keep us busy. And how often have you gone back to I go back Atlanta? to Atlanta about once or twice a year. Once or twice a year. Yeah. For any particular occasion? Uh, no. I just go back. Sometimes I go for Pesach. Sometimes I go for Simchas how it develops and just in closing Rabbi what, what's occupying your time nowadays what are you involved with are you still writing do you have any projects on the horizon I'm still writing uh, what I'm involved with podcasts <laughs> such, such as yours I write a, a uh, column every other week for Mishpacha magazine sure I write other articles uh, occasionally in Jerusalem Post and this and that and the other I try to learn every day uh, and uh, I go to a, I attend a daf every morning and uh, every evening and so forth. And I try to keep out of trouble. <laughs> well, we, we thank you for not only keeping out of trouble, but for bringing uh, your wisdom and passion and love of the Jewish people, not only to Atlanta, but to the, to the world at large through your writing and your speaking. And it's been a tremendous honor to speak with you for a little, a little bit. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.